center our conversation around the invitation to a Holy Lent that we hear on Ash Wednesday and that we also included in our liturgy this morning. I'll first say a little bit about why. Um, of course, it's the first Sunday of Lent, so that's the why of the timing. But something that's important to me is sharing liturgical education. There's a lot of this learning that happens in seminaries. Some of this happens for folks in confirmation classes, or maybe you have learned some of this over time in the Episcopal Church. But we have many people who are coming from other traditions or people who have been in the Episcopal Church, and it's because it's the water that we are swimming in, we don't always notice um, things that are happening or know why they're happening. So it's a passion of mine to share some of that and to dig into it so that we all have a deeper understanding of what it is that we are doing when we come together for worship. Uh, so this is of particular interest to me, and it's a delight to get to share it with you. Um, I'll say that there are people who are definitely much more expert than I am, but I'm glad for you to stop me at any point and ask questions, and I'll do my best to answer them, or for us to think creatively about where we might find an answer. We'll start with prayer. God be with you. Let us pray. O oh God, whose glory it is to have mer always have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the un unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect for the second Sunday of Lent, so we'll actually hear it next week in worship, um, but it, it was speaking to me this week as well. We'll first talk about what Lent is, and in order to do that, I'll remind us of where we are in the arc of the liturgical year. Um, this is likely review, but as a reminder, we start with Advent, that season preparing us for Christmas. We have the season of Christmas, we have Epiphany and the season after Epiphany, and then with Ash Wednesday, we start Lent, which is our season of preparation for Easter, for the Paschal Feast and Mystery. Early Christians observed this fast before the Paschal Feast, or before Pascha, as it's called. Um, and it started as just a couple of days of full fasting um, before the Easter Vigil and the celebration that comes with that. But over the years, it uh, changed shape and form. By about the fourth century, um, people were starting to observe it as a 40-day uh, season of repentance and penitence. Um, and the fast changed nature um, because of the length of time as well. I'll say a little bit about why we call it Lent um, in a moment. Uh, whoops. But for, for sake of getting us started, Lent comes from an old English word uh, for lengthening of days or spring. Um, so it happens in the springtime for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so a little bit about that, that naming as it relates to the time when we observe it. Lent is a time uh, to prepare for baptism um, from the days of the ancient church 
The Easter Vigil uh, was an opportunity for initiation into the Christian church. Uh, so for many people, this was a season of preparation for that baptism. Uh, early catechumens, and some churches still observe this, they'll have uh, on the first Sunday of Lent, they'll bring all of the catechumens, those are the people who are studying to be baptized. This is when we only had adult baptism. Uh, Catechumens would be brought forth in front of the congregation so that we could all know during the season of Lent who we were praying for as they prepared for the baptism. And those catechumens would have a process of the catechumenate uh, as they prepared and learned all that there is to know about embracing baptismal life. So that is kind of the, the origin of this longer season, when it started as just a two-day fast, that of course has a prayerful significance. But if you're going to do lots of education to prepare for baptism, you probably want more than two days. So the season over time uh, made space for that. So time of preparation for baptism. Historically, it was also a time when notorious sinners, as they were called, had an opportunity to reconcile with the church. So these were people who um, had been pushed out of the church um, because of the nature of their sins. I don't know details of exactly that, what that would have included or looked like in uh, the course of history, but Lent offered, offered an opportunity to repair relationship, and as we brought new members into the Christian community with initiation through baptism, those people who were seeking a restored relationship with their community had an opportunity to do that during Lent and at Easter. Uh, so that's part of the history of our season of repentance there. It's also uh, 40 days, which mirrors Jesus's fast in the wilderness, uh, so that when we needed a longer season, uh, needed more than two days, 40 is a really natural amount of time for us as Christians to observe that season, because Jesus was sent out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and temptation. That's the gospel passage that we read today. Um, I really enjoy that the, the version we read this morning uh, talks about the angels guarding Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, and taking care of him in that time in the wilderness. So perhaps that's a reminder to us in the, these 40 days of Lent as well. A little bit about the naming of Lent. As I mentioned, Lent as we call it refers to the lengthening of days um, or springtime, that's of Anglo-Saxon origin. But it only works for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. So as I was doing some research to get ready for this, it made me wonder, okay, if that's what, what we call it, and that we can know that that doesn't work for the whole world, it got me curious about other names for Lent, which isn't something that I'd really dug into previously. So I learned um, about different origins for the names of this season. Uh, languages coming from Greek and Latin focus on the 40, the 40th aspect of this season, the 40th weekday before Easter, uh, quadragesima, quadragesima, something like that, um, is that original um, Greek term for that 40th day, um, which in Spanish becomes quaresma, 
of Quaranta, 40, um, and things of that nature in different languages. Um, then there are other languages still that emphasize the fasting part of the season as they name the season. Uh, so you end up with names like the fasting period or the great fast. Um, those are some literal translations from some other languages. Uh, so depending on uh, the root of the language, uh, where people are in the world, um, again, Lent only works uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, um, so different names come about for the season, but the same season, just uh, many different ways of talking about it. Over the course of history, there has been controversy about how we count the 40 days, because what is the church without um, arguing over little things like that, um, little bits of counting? But what we've landed on in our tradition is that we have 40 days plus six Sundays. So often people will come to me and say, well, I got my calendar out and I counted the 40 days of Lent and our calendar is wrong, um, which is a fair response, but it's because those six Sundays are regarded as feasts. Uh, feasts are, every Sunday is a feast in our tradition. So. This can lead to different ways of observing Lent. For some people, they want to keep up their practice all 40 plus six uh, days of Lent. For some people, they want a reprieve from their practice on those feast days. <laughs> I hear that that's popular among someone back there. Um, so having that, those six days um, of feasting, that can mean uh, pausing from your fast. It can mean having some other special observance. Uh, I was reading a book about how to observe the seasons of the year in your home, and this person recommended that that's a night you should have a special dessert with your family um, on Sunday evenings. So take that for what you will. Um, but depending on how you choose to observe it, observe Lent, you can have those six days of feasting if you like. Why do we observe Lent? I, I've sort of gotten into this already, that it's a season of preparation, an opportunity for reflection and repentance. Christmas and Easter are the two big holidays that we look to as Christians, um, and each of them has a season of preparation. So Advent, again, begins our liturgical year. That's a season of preparation for the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, um, in terms of his birth and more eschatologically, um, the return of Christ. And Lent has its is the season of preparation for Easter as well. So both of these big holidays have an opportunity to prepare for them, to get our hearts and minds ready for what we um, are about to receive. Often Lent has sort of a somber tone, um, and I would like to say that it doesn't have to. Um, it, does involve some simplifying, some stripping away of extra things. Um, it can have a somber tone because repentance is a serious thing, um, not something to take lightly. But it's also a season where we get to celebrate joy and renewal. We know that that's what's ahead of us. Also, as in this season of spring, there's a lot of joy and renewal happening around us. And as we repent, 
We do that because we trust in God's grace and mercy. So to know that confession and repentance are important are also to know that forgiveness is a possibility. And with God, we know that that is the possibility. Um, it's, it's what we receive in God, that grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So that's something to rejoice in as well. Uh, we can observe this um, in many different ways. I was talking with, I have a clergy coach, and we were talking about how I was going to observe Lent. And I was talking about how I really enjoyed what we've just done in the season after Epiphany with Year W. Uh, and I'm really savoring those feminine images of God. So we were talking about how I keep that up for, for myself and Lent. And one of the things that we came up with that is far from somber uh, is to make an icon using sequins and rhinestones, uh, which those of you who have gotten to know me over my time here will know that that's very on brand for me to have something that is uh, sparkly and pointing to God. Uh, so that's something that we came up with as a practice for me that allows me to draw closer to God, a prayer practice, something about gluing hundreds of sequins just lets you like really focus in on prayer. Uh, so that's something that I'm picking up that's, that's not somber at all, but is a prayer practice that invites me into contemplation and closeness with God. Um, so just as an example of the ways that we can um, broaden our observance. This is the invitation to a Holy Lent. It's a lot of words. It's actually on this slide and the next. And if you'd like to be able to look at the whole thing at once, it's in the Book of Common Prayer on page 265 to 2, or sorry, 264 to 265. So if you're interested in having the whole thing in front of you, um, feel free to, to flip for that. I'll read it aloud, and I'll invite you to notice what words stand out to you, uh, what resonates for you, what confuses you or challenges you, makes you uncomfortable, um, and I'll ask folks to just uh, call those out once we've read the prayer together. And I'll do it in two sections um, since we can't all see it all at once. Dear people of God, the first Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's passion and, and resurrection. It became the custom of the church to prepare for them by a season of penitence and fasting. The season of Lent provided a time in which converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, had been separated from the body of the faithful, were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness and restored to the fellowship of the church. Thereby, the whole congregation was put in mind of these messages of pardon and absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior and of the need which all Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith. What stands out to you in that first half of the invitation? You can just call it out and I'll repeat it for the sake of the room. What do you notice? It can be just a single word that captured your attention or a, or a fuller thought. A reset. A reset. Mm -hmm. The last part there reminds me of uh, Puritan New England. Mm -hmm. Stops and you stay there 
Yeah. That last part reminds Tom of Puritan New England, uh, where sins and confession were made really public, um, a, a spectacle, really, um, using stocks and um, folks having to be there until the community agreed that they had repented enough. N nor have I, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Struck by the, you know, just how, how, how are things done? What's always been done that way, or it's written down. You know, it sounds like just the first Christians observed with great devotion, like no one told them, they just, they just did. <laughs> and it became the custom of the church. Like yeah. It was, at first it was kind of organic, and then it became like, no, this is, form, you know, formal, we're going to make it part of the church custom. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh a tradition that sort of organically arose in the church, those early Christians observing it because they decided to. I, I, I don't know exactly what um, motivated them other than just the, the mystery of the Paschal Feast. Um, and then over time, it became what we know now. Um, so sort of interesting to try and trace uh, that history. Yeah. Yeah, notorious sins as a place that stands out, um, and that, that possibility of excommunication, yeah. Um, historically, you know, reconciliation, um, Yeah, restoration, reconciliation, penitence, all themes that are standing out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All Christians, and I notice that word continually as well. All Christians continually have to renew their repentance and faith. Yeah. Devotion. Mm -hmm. Inga's naming that when she was growing up, a Lent had a more solemn tone to it, um, and that over time perhaps we've eased up on our observance, um, and that it was a shock to hear about those Sundays as a feast, um, and, and makes you wonder about the devotion when you get a reprieve every seven days. So sort of a shift within your lifetime of the way that we observe it. Um, which I think would be a curious thing to dig into um, in terms of the way the church operates. Yeah. I'm still stuck on the second part, but it seems to me that in order for the second part to have teeth, the clergy must have been much more judgmental of the parishioners and being 
The second part of this um, implies more judgment um, in the community for someone to say um, that a person is set apart. The clergy, probably in particular, yeah. Mm -hmm. Individual and collective, yeah, yeah. I'll read the next part for us. I invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent, by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word, and to make a right beginning of repentance, and as a mark of our moral nature, let us now kneel before the Lord, our Maker and Redeemer. So this is used in the context of the Ash Wednesday liturgy, um, and we then kneel for a while, for as long as the presider decides we need to be there. Um, so that, that's where it, it's towards, in the Book of Common Prayer, it's right after the sermon. Um, and then there's a time of kneeling. What stands out to you in the second half? If you have just a word to call out, you can do that. But if you have a little more to say, we'll bring a microphone. Let's bring. Oh, thank you. One, one thing I'm curious to hear more about is um, I understand the fasting and self-denial as part of, you know, being closer to God or more focused on one's relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious if there's supposed to be a relationship between fasting and self-denial and repentance, or if repentance is kind of its own separate thing that doesn't have to do with deprivation. Hmm. That's a great question, and I, I think you could interpret it any number of ways. Um, and we'll talk in a in a minute about different ways of observing Lent and the, the kinds of observances that there are, including fasting. I, I think that's a good, a good question that we could all maybe land on different answers because in some ways it's possible that repentance, um, which to repent, by the way, means to turn around. Um, so if I know that I'm headed in this direction, which is a sinful path, um, whatever sort of sin that is. To repent is to literally about face and to decide to live differently. So in that sense, it's giving up of this alternative, which you could see as fasting, um, especially depending on the sort of sin that it is. Um, a friend of ours is fasting from um, Amazon Prime during Lent, um, which we know that there's some problems with the way that Amazon operates um, and that it doesn't necessarily point towards justice. So for her, that's a, a, a place of repentance, um, doing something differently in her life, um, and of fasting, um, just as an example. So I think you could interpret that any number of ways. Fasting from injustice, I don't know. Um, fasting from a, a particular um, vice might allow us to repent and to choose a different way. But I'm sure there's folks who would say the opposite of what I'm saying and say those are two 
really different ways of observing Lent or Christian life in general? It's a great question. Yes, Angela. I too am struggling with the fasting and self-denial. Um, being a woman of my age, growing up in getting a lots of messages about diet culture and denying of self of food and nourishment, um, and who, when I was young, gave up sugar, gave up chocolate, like all of these things, and Lent is not actually a diet. Um, and I wonder, for people who do fasting around food, especially if it like ends up, the impact of that fasting is that you are not properly nourished and then might be hangry. Like how does that actually take you farther away from God and farther away from your community in the ways that you interact with in, in people in your circle through these 40 days? Um, and, and along with the other things we've been talking about that you've already talked about, Adeline, of the, what is a practice of putting on? What is a practice that we can take up that is, uh, it's like a reframing. And so I'm challenged by this invitation to Lent that explicitly names fasting and self-denial. Because yeah. I think not everyone, there are plenty of folks who spend their whole time denying themselves. And like, what is a call towards more devotion um, that's a little different? Mm -hmm. I'll use that as a, as a transition point. Um, Angela is my wife and a Presbyterian pastor. Um, so we end up talking about these things all the time. And I feel like you maybe looked at my presentation notes already. You didn't, but we talked about it. <laughs> um, these are the sorts of things that we talk about often, um, sort of debating what these different things mean for us um, and how we as pastors can share the information. Um, so I'll, I'll switch us into talking about these acts of devotion, including fasting um, and how Lent is not a diet. Um, I have them in a different order in my presentation, but we will get to that. Um, so the acts of devotion are often divided into three categories, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And these can be interpreted pretty broadly. Um, you'll notice that repentance is not explicitly named as one of these, but you could think of repentance as a kind of prayer, as a kind of fasting, and even as a kind of almsgiving. So there's lots of room for interpretation there, broadness in these categories. We'll start by looking at prayer, um, and there's two ways that I want to, us to talk about prayer. One is private prayer, so the things that we do on our own or in a small group. And then I also want to talk about changes in liturgy, because our liturgy does have some significant alterations during our observance of Lent. This is a picture from Westminster Abbey. Um, it's there. Serum Lenten Array. So we use a Lenten Array here as well, behind this projector. You might be able to see what's on the pulpit, um, or you've seen it already in church or will. Um, we use an unbleached linen that has red and black um, designs on it. And that's a, a common practice um, for many churches to use the unbleached linen um, with red and black symbols on it. Some churches use purple for Lent um, as a season of preparation. Um, both work, um, both are, are perfectly 
appropriate. Um, but if, if folks are using a Lenten array, it's normally minimally adorned, um, except for those red and black images. With the exception of Leitare Sunday, which is a pink Sunday, which I naturally have to bring up. Um, so that is a Sunday of refreshment. Is it the fifth Sunday of of Lent? It's either the fourth or fifth, I'm drawing a blank. Um, but Leitare Sunday is a pink Sunday, and we are privileged enough to have a set of rose-colored vestments. So we do use those here um, in church. Um, most churches don't have pink because you only get to use it twice a year. Uh, so we were privileged to have that um, and do pull it out for Leitare Sunday. Um, it's a season of refreshment because in the lectionary, um, we read about the feeding of the 5,000. We only hear that in year B, though, which, lucky for us, is the year that we are in. So we will hear um, that scripture on Leitare Sunday. Um, so that's an exception to the um, Lenten array here. We don't have flowers on the altar, um, sort of bare bones. Um, some churches use sticks. Some churches don't have anything. I, did my field education in Texas at a church that used cacti, um, which is very appropriate for that setting. So different ways that people interpret and um, lean into that no flower rule. We also don't say alleluia um, during the service, um, which can throw us off, especially for things like the dismissal, which we're used to most of the time having alleluia, alleluia, thanks be to God, alleluia, alleluia. Um, and when we don't have that auditory cue, we're like, oh, what? Uh, oh, yeah, it's, it's time for that. Um, I also used something that was not familiar to us today at the 9 o'clock service, so I added to that confusion. Um, but we don't use Alleluia. Um, some churches will use the Great Litany, um, which is a, a special form of prayer on Sundays. We also move our confession to the beginning of the service um, as sort of an abbreviated um, version of the penitential order. Um, so that allows us to come in um, with that attitude of penitence, um, of repentance, um, changing our hearts and minds uh, that we might lean further into God. Um, and we put that right at the beginning so that it remains central to our worship. I was reminded as I was setting the table this morning for uh, the Eucharist, we have lots of special linens here at St. Columba's. I've never experienced a church that has uh, seasonal linens. They're really beautiful. And this is uh, the emblem that's on our Lenten linens. So it's on the pall, which is a flat, um, cardboard sort of thing that goes over the chalice. It's on our purificators, which are the towels that we wipe the chalice with. Um, it, I don't think that it's on the fair linen itself, but we have these in a few different places. Um, and it has different symbols of Lent and particularly of the Passion. So I'll name a few of those for you. Um, and if you're curious about it, there, there's a page explaining um, what the different symbols are, um, and you're welcome to take a closer look if you like. We also have special uh, Christmas and Easter linens. The Christmas ones have a little tiny embroidered nativity that's really gorgeous. So I want to point these things out because they're things that most people don't get to see the details of. 
So here, um, starting in the center at the top, we have a seamless cloak, um, which Jesus's garment is torn into pieces at the crucifixion um, and was without seams prior to that. Uh, we have a pitcher of water for the foot washing, a rooster um, related to Peter's denial, uh, coins that Judas would have received um, for turning Jesus over, um, crown of thorns, um, we have the chalice and cross for the Last Supper, we have a sponge, Jesus being offered um, that vinegary wine, um, dice for casting lots for his garments, um, piercing Jesus in the side, um, and onward. So lots of different images there um, that can remind us of, of the passion of Lent. Um, so I wanted to make sure that that's something that you all got to see since you might not normally. Tom, did you have a? Oh, okay. Then in terms of private prayer or personal prayer practice, um, I'll offer just some ideas of what that could look like um, to help us sort of brainstorm if you've yet to find a Lenten practice um, or just looking for a spiritual practice in your life in general. That could be something like having a gratitude journal each day, remembering something that you're grateful for. You could pray the daily office, use the Ignatian Examine, which is a five-part review of your day, remembering um, where God was present in your day and looking forward to the next day. Journaling, um, gathering with a community of friends for prayer, stations of the cross. Um, we don't have them here, but there are some churches that have stations of the cross that are outside and available to folks any time of day um, or year, if that's something that you're interested in, uh, things like breath prayer, contemplative prayer, lots of different ways to engage that one. Um, probably the most obvious one um, for many of us, since there are so many different ways to pray, but just for a bit of inspiration. Now we'll turn to fasting. Um, fasting is about a Lenten sacrifice and about letting go. Lent is not a diet. Um, I don't think that Jesus would endorse our modern diet culture um, that tells us we must always be smaller. Um, I know those are the messages that I grew up with. I think it's in the water still. Um, so it, it, you can have your, your personal weight loss goals with your doctor for your um, personal health. That's gonna be different for every person. Um, I'm not a dietitian. But I, I will say that spiritual practice is not about weight loss. Um, there's a really great book um, called Flunking Sainthood by Jana Reese, and she goes through 12 different practices, um, spiritual practices during the course of the year, and she starts um, with fasting. Actually, I think she did fasting in February because it's the shortest month. Um, but uh, she realized partway through the month that she was taking a lot of pride in the comments she was receiving about the changes in her body. And she said that she realized like, oh, this might not be about God anymore. Um, so just as an example, it's also a really great book, Flunking Sainthood, if you're curious about different spiritual practices and so the sort of pros and cons of each one. Um, and all of us will engage different spiritual practices 
differently. So there's not a, a one size fits all spiritual practice. But Lent is not a diet and fasting can take, take many forms. Some people do um, a sort of sun up to sun down fasting akin to Ramadan and that works for them. Um, some people will have um, meatless Fridays or be vegetarian for the full course of Lent, um, which also might be a sort of environmental kind of repentance. Um, simplifying your meals not eating out, making sure you're sitting around the table with your family or prioritizing meals with friends. There's lots of ways that you can engage that fasting um, that don't lean into diet culture. If for you, giving up your, your daily piece of chocolate is what helps you to pray and center yourself in God, do that. Um, I, I won't take that from you. Um, but just uh, something to be mindful of because of our current culture around dieting. There are also other ways of fasting that are not food related. I mentioned on Ash Wednesday that I, a couple of years ago, fasted from clicking on Instagram ads. Um, that is one of my greatest sins because I do it way too much. Um, I don't necessarily buy things, but I waste a lot of time shopping around because Instagram gave me a really cute ad that I feel like I have to click on and then I go down a rabbit hole. So that, that's something that I've fasted from um, that opened up a lot of time for me that then I could use for things like being with my community or praying, reading, um, those sorts of things. I've seen several people post recently about fasting from self-doubt, um, meaning that when they notice themselves in a pattern of self-doubt, they can release it and instead return to God's grace, mercy, and love, or turn to their love of their community. Um, so we're never going to be able to fully give up self-doubt, um, but noticing it and releasing it when we can um, is something that I've, I've seen. Um, minimizing our energy use. So I've seen people do um, an environmental, environmentally focused observance of Lent, making sure you're turning off all the lights when you leave a room, turning off all of your lights at 9 p.m. or whatever it may be, different ways to reduce energy use, um, drying your clothes outside, those sorts of things. Um, it also can be helpful to just slow down in general during the course of Lent, and that can look different for every person. Um, so it might be an activity that you want to let go of for 40 days um, to see what time it frees up. Um, slowing down. It's all about intentionality. Um, it's a practice of letting go so that we might lean into God, and that looks different for every person. And this practice of fasting, again, mirrors Jesus' fast in the wilderness, those 40 days. Almsgiving um, is that third category of practice, which I would say centers on generosity and justice. Um, and I'll read for us in a moment the passage from Isaiah 58 that we read on Ash Wednesday, which I think is a great reminder of why we do these practices and how they're oriented in our lives. But I think this is one that can have a really broad interpretation. Um, could be small gifts for friends or strangers, making blessing bags to give to people in need financial contributions um, to organizations, especially those helping people in poverty, 
um, writing a kind note each day, hooray for snail mail, um, all sorts of things like that um, might fit in the category of almsgiving. Um, it can also be a justice-centered practice. Last year, as a congregation, we read the book uh, Reparations um, and have talked about reparations as a congregation. So that's something that um, ties into almsgiving um, as a practice of justice. Before I read this passage for us from Isaiah 58, I'm curious what came up for you in that um, really quick overview of the kinds of spiritual practice for Lent. Prayer almsgiving and fasting. Yeah. For, for me, it, it was less about which I do, but the intentionality with mm -hmm. which I do it. Yes. And, and that's a takeaway for me in terms of something to reflect on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Intentionality is everything. And also allows us to have grace when we don't practice it perfectly. Perfection is not the goal, especially with God. Um, God alone is perfect and will perfect us in time. Um, but when, in, when our intention is what, is what captures us, I think we can have grace with ourselves. What was going through my mind was uh, my friend here's comment earlier, basically talking about uh, prayer and fasting and almsgiving. What was going through my mind was those are the practices that enable me or us to to turn around, mm -hmm. to repent. Mm -hmm. That that gives the power, the hope, the the ability to actually make changes in our life and mm -hmm. give us the the space to do that. Yeah. Which I think is a reminder also of that reset. I think for, for many of us, Lent can be kind of a reset button um, where we adopt a practice that does allow, allow us to, to turn around and, and choose a different path, even in small ways. This doesn't have to be a complete reorienting of our lives, um, but little things make a difference. Um, yeah, so thank you for that. Practices that allow us to, to repent. Any other comments? Okay, I'll read us this passage from Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. So that's a reminder to me that, that all of this um, is oriented to God and to God's justice in the world. Um, that it, it's not, it's about our personal lives of faith and it's oriented to something much bigger than ourselves as well. Any comments on that passage, things that stand out to you in there? Fast meaning holding fast mm -hmm. is the way I read that. I read it as um, choosing a fast that allows these other things to happen. 
But I, I think it, I mean, it can be both, because um, this is a set of values that you could hold on to as well. The gift of biblical interpretation. I'll offer us a blessing for Lent as we close. This is from Rod Hamilton um, in the Church of Scotland. May we find the road that leads to life. May we take the turns that bring right relationships. May we pause to accompany others on the way. And may we journey with God through Lent and long for the horizon and the dawn. Amen. Thank you all. It's good to be together. And please ask me any other liturgical questions you have at any time.